Yes, sir. I notice none of my instruments or anything are in here. Well, that's all right. We'll get it on. Edgar, do you know who Edgar Kennedy is? 
He's the guy, the famous uh, movie guy with a uh, slow burn. You know, the bald-headed guy. Used to put his hand over, you know, so a fat guy. Don't you remember that? Slow burn Edgar Kennedy. Well, that shows how how non-appreciated he is. You don't even remember him. And he has been appearing on Channel 5 lately. They're putting on these... I used to flip. I mean, every time I saw an Edgar Kennedy short, when they made two real comedy shorts, Kennedy used to absolutely knock me flat. And you know why? Because Kennedy's life and the way he wrote, you know, the way the comedies were put together, it was, uh, well, it was the way it was. <laughs> I mean, that's all I could say. Kennedy was a, was a, all right, I'll ask you a question. I mean, do any of you know, in his two real shorts that he made very famous, there were, there were characters, one of them was called the brother-in-law. Another was called the wife. Another was called the mother-in-law. Now, Kennedy would come home in the beginning of every one of, his, uh, of, of, of the two real comedies. A little fat guy. He looked like he was always on the verge of a heart attack. Yeah, he looked very uh, dyspeptic. And he was always so good-hearted. <laughs> he would always start out with the absolute best of intentions. And he would, he, there would be a scene of him coming home from work. And he lived in this little house. And what did he do for a job? I wonder how many of you know that. What was his job? Well, I'll tell you so that it doesn't cause... He was a, he was a streetcar motorman. <laughs> and he would come home from his job. And he'd walk into the house. And he'd always be very happy. You'd see him coming up the back steps. And he'd open the door and he'd say, I'm home! Hey, I'm home! Hey, Eddie's home! You look around the kitchen, you see a pile of dirty dishes in the kitchen with water dripping out. And you see the, the, uh, the kitchen table there has still got the breakfast dishes on it. <laughs> you see the little look of pain. And then out of the door would come his brother-in-law still wearing his bathrobe. It's late in the afternoon after he's finished work, and his brother-in-law is mad. And he says to Ed, he says to Ed, Oh, you did it today. You really did it today. And that's says, what, what, what did I do? You forgot to leave the keys to the car. And I wanted to go to the ball game. <laughs> and that's the way it started all the time. Ed was always... And I remember one scene when Ed's coming home real happy because he's telling the guys at work, see, he's got his new car. And he's delighted, see. He's, he can hardly wait to get home from work because he's got this new car and he's going to take the car out and everything else. He's going to take the family out for a ride. And he's walking down the street and all of a sudden you see his car coming out backwards down the driveway. He's just backing out. He sees it. See, he's about a half a block away. He's just backing out and there's nobody driving it. It just backs out and it's like a Greek tragedy. It goes right across the street and you see this truck come along. brother-in-law done it again <laughs> he parked the car and left the brake off <sighs> well this is edgar kennedy and, the, and one of the one of the listener types writes in he says the edgar kennedy shorts of channel five has been showing late at night are about the blackest comedy this side of ionesco in one of them for instance he hires a man who resembles him to impersonate him at home every evening <laughs> so he can go out and play poker without his wife's knowledge. 
Yeah, that's right. This stuff was sinister. By the way, speaking of a uh, black comedy here, you know, this uh, life is a uh, far blacker comedy, believe me, than any any uh, Ionesco could ever write. Uh, we have a little note here, for example. I'd like to salute Edgar Kennedy. I think he's you know he was great in his day. Uh, I'd like to uh, you know speaking of black comedy, listen to this. I don't know whether I should bring this out to you on this you know this somewhat calm night. Now, why the heck? Where did I put? Here it is. I want you to listen to this headline. Camel, dead in yard. Origin, unexplained. <laughs> How's that for a nice little headline? Please, Herbert, please. <laughs> America's Indiana. When Robert... America's Indiana. I'll bet none of you even never heard of America's Indiana. I've been in America's Indiana. I'm from Indiana, you know. America's Indiana makes Flemington, New Jersey look like Manhattan. I'm serious. <laughs> it's a little tiny town, America's Indiana. When Robert Bonert's son came home from a basketball game at 1 a.m. and said, uh, Dad, there's a camel in the front yard. Bonert suspected his son had been hitting the jug. And he says, get the bed. And the kid went up to bed. The next morning, the family woke up, and there in the front yard was a camel, dead. State police checked Indiana zoos for miles around, and the remaining winter circus quarters at Peru, Indiana. No one to this reading has reported missing a camel, which was found dead on the lawn of the Boner House in America's Indiana. Dad, there's a dead camel in the yard. Ah, get up to bed. Quit hitting that jug. <laughs> ah! All right. You reset that, Herb. We're going to need that. Now, I want to tell you this. I want you to listen to me carefully, you clods out there. There is a strain of disbelief that runs through the average American mind because he's so used to fiction. The average American really believes the Paul Newman movies are true. That's the way life is. The average American who is so brought up on movies and TV shows and novels believes that they're far truer than real life. And so he does not believe the stories out of real life. I'm sure that a lot of you listening to this story about the camels are, oh, come on. Are you kidding? Camel, come on. Oh. And you believe Portnoy's complaint. You really do. Now, I... Well, I should put it this way. The camel is a well-known phenomenon in Indiana. I told the story, I have told a story many times about a camel. I'm going to tell it tonight for those of you who haven't heard it. It's a true story. But do you know what? That kid, Robert Bonert's son, they don't even tell you what his name is. That kid, 40 years from now, is going to be sitting at a bar. 
He's going to tell the guys at the bar about the time he came home from school and there was a dead camel in the yard. The old man told him he was out of his bird and he'd been drinking. And everybody at the bar is going to say, Oh, come on, Robert Bonert's kid. Don't give me that stuff. <laughs> you know, you're full of canal water, Robert Bonert's kid. You're coming out here. Tell us all this jazz. Why? Because it's a story out of real life. And real life stories are far more difficult to accept than some contrived concoction of Edward Albee. We constantly refuse to believe the evidence of our own eyes, and especially our own ears. If I have told this story once, I've told it 20 times in the past. I'm going to tell it to you again for a reason. Like Robert Bonnet's kid, I too was the object of ridicule that was heaped on me in copious amounts and has been ever since because of an incident regarding a camel in the state of Indiana. Now, if some Lebanese had told you a story about a camel, you'd probably buy it. You agree with that? But if somebody from America's Indiana tells you a story about a camel, you are inclined to disbelieve. Why? Well, just the nature of the beast. For example, now I've been getting this lately. I've been getting letters from people who refuse to accept the fact, the absolute fact, Herb, that I am head-thumping. When I play my head, I am thumping my head. I am not hitting a wood block. I am not, I am not playing upon a rubber bed. I am actually head-thumping. And a lot of people are furious because they try to do it, and they can't do it. And so they conclude that nobody can do it, which is silly. I mean, that's like, like pretending that nobody can run a four-minute mile because you can't. Obviously, a few people can, and it takes years of training, dedication, lifelong dedication. Now, listen carefully to the sound of this head being thumped. That is the sound of a head being thumped, and I don't give a damn whether you believe it or not, friend. If you don't believe it, you're just missing nine-tenths of life. That's the end of it. Right, Herb? It's actually happening. <laughs> now, if you'll give me a little music, Herb, a little of that uh, uh, razzmatazz music, I'll show you how the head is thumped in actual performance. Please, Herb. City, 
And we've got a couple of little commercial whoopies for you. TV Guide covers television. From hockey's blue line to the fall fashion line and the television network's jagged profit-loss line. In the current issue of TV Guide magazine, columnist Red Smith charts America's love affair with hockey and the growing interest generated by television. The regal elegance of Sophia Loren, modeling lovely fashions from Paris. Richard K. Doan examines the facts behind the network's crisis and the economic, political, and competitive storm clouds that threatened their day in the sun. Look for Andy Griffith on the cover of this week's issue of TV Guide. TV Guide, New York's biggest-selling weekly magazine. America's biggest-selling weekly magazine. TV Guide, on sale everywhere. Well, here's one of the great rhetorical questions of our time. Your ShopRite supermarket asked you a direct question. Why pay more <laughs> for U.S. Grade A Rock Cornish hens? They are now on sale at ShopRite this week at 35 cents a pound, and they are out of sight. Or if you prefer, there's U.S. Choice Shortcut Oven Ready Rib Roast, and it's 79 cents a pound. Got all kinds of great stuff. Fresh fruit, vegetable department. Let's see, 49 cents for a 10-pound bag of U.S. number one grade potatoes. And firm ripe tomatoes, two cartons for 29 cents. Delicious meals that are always there, and they make it right at ShopRite. You'll find quality variety in the lowest possible prices. So ask yourself that rhetorical question, why pay more? Uh, and that's yourself. Go to ShopRite. Do it right. Don't pay more. Go to ShopRite. Now, uh, may I do this once more, and then I'm going to drop it for a while because I'm preparing a... I'm working with a uh, composer right now, Herb. I'm working with a composer on a sonata for head, bassoon, trumpet, and timpani. I'm serious. And we're going we're gonna to throw this at Lenny Bernstein, boy, I'll tell you. If he can throw a party for the Black Panthers, he can throw a party for a head spieler. Okay, now listen carefully. Listen to that head, boy. Fantastic sound. And it's not the sound of wood block being played either. Unless, of course, you want to be a cheap humor, you know. Of course, that's typical Jersey humor. Now, I, I'm, I'm a little concerned. <laughs> you like that, don't you? <laughs> I'm a little concerned, though, about this story to Campbell because this guy, you know, Robert Barnett's son, and 40 years from now, people are going to laugh and snort. And that, this could very well uh, scar his psyche deeply. Do you notice one thing? The first thing the old man didn't believe him? They didn't believe him at all. Did the old man go out and look to see whether there was a camel in the yard? No. They didn't find it out till the next morning after the kid had been sent up to go to bed. Now, what did the kid learn about that? Well, I'll tell you what he learned. He learned the very thing that I learned when you're dealing with camels. Nobody will believe anything you tell them about camels for some reason or other. And I'm going to tell you a story, a true story about a camel, not in America's Indiana, but in a town very much like America's Indiana. Now, when I was a kid, we had 
you know, I was, you know, I was walking around being a kid, and you know, you know, you know, playing the thing right up to the hill, uh, walking around wearing high tops and uh, at, uh, reading Donald Duck and all that kind of stuff, and you know, we're not operating kids and uh, saying bad things about my old man, and you know, standing behind a Sherwin Williams paint sign with Schwartz and Flick and Bruner and telling dirty stories, and uh, at the we'd go down to Troop Forty One, and that was a Boy Scout troop I was in. I was in the Moose Patrol. And we go down to Troop 41, and every night we would have this uh, this uh, slogan they, they'd give out. You know, the you remember when you had to you had to get the Boy Scout salute, and then they had this Boy Scout Pledge of Allegiance, and they hold your finger like this. See, I'm doing it right now. See, you put your hand up and you say, "I pledge allegiance." No, no, that wasn't what we say. Uh, I'm brave, clean, reverent, and uh, I will always be truthful and honest and brave and all that stuff, and uh, I will preserve the. Uh, the basic tenets of the Boy Scout religion, which is to be brave, clean, and reverent, and honest, and truthful, and always be prepared. Well, I used to believe that stuff. Say, I was a kid, I thought, well, you know, that's easy enough to do. It's always easy to be prepared. All you got to do is be prepared. You can keep your scout knife with you. And, uh, <laughs> you know, there are actually people who believe you can't be prepared for life. Many people believe that. It's one of the great, sad misconceptions of existence, but they believe it. And if they want to believe that, I ain't going to be the one to rock their little old boat made out of a sugar cube, which is quietly and swiftly melting, even as they sit in the middle of it and how I'm prepared. Well, all right. Sure, that's why the Titanic is such a classic story. I mean, all these people figured they had it made. And zap! You know, wow we. I mean, it's very hard to explain to the first-class passengers, you know, that you're, you know, that you're, uh, your matched alligator luggage is now under 450 feet of <laughs> water. <laughs> it's not easy. But uh, the, uh, still, nevertheless, the uh, the mythology persists that people can be prepared for life. Well, I used to believe this. You see, when I was about eight or nine, I figured, you know, you could be prepared for life. How are you prepared? Why you always keep your Boy Scout knife with you. That's one important thing. So if somebody leaps out of the bush, you can get them in the gizzard. Now, uh, <laughs> I don't know what you could... <laughs> yeah, that was part of the, you know, the mythology. You could be prepared by uh, thinking ahead. That's what Miss uh, Shields always say. Think ahead, boys and girls. Always consider ahead and plan your day in advance so that you do not waste time in, in, the, in bad planning. Well, that meant, uh, you know, hang in there. And the day before any kind of an exam, you were supposed to pick up the book and read it. Well, at first I thought it was me. You see, I would always sit down and read the book the day before the exam, and I always come out with a 32 on it. And I always figured that I was reading the wrong parts, which is true. Uh, so even being prepared does not always work out. And so I'm, I'm uh, you know how it is when you're a kid, you just walk around uh, constantly looking, digging a scene, uh, vaguely... M- uncomprehendingly looking at things. Well, in our neighborhood, we had this old house that was roughly on, built on the order of the old Charles Adams house. You know the old Charles Adams house in, uh, in the Charles Adams cartoons? It was a gigantic Victorian pile of gray wood, and it had filigreed all over the outside of it. Tremendous house. And it was must have been about four stories high, and it had bay windows that had L's, you know, those big things they have on the top and had had uh, these big bold uh, fronts and all of it. And on the top of it, they had one of these strange kind of fluted roof. 
and there was a there were a couple of towers that stuck up that had these round kind of cone-like uh, roofs on it made out of green tile. It's a wild-looking house, and it was set way back. Um, oh, I'd say probably a good 150, 200 yards back off the street on this big, big lot, tremendous lot that was overgrown with huge weeping willow trees. Tremendous place. And it was so completely out of context with the rest of the neighborhood that it just was sort of a mysterious place that nobody ever really seriously ever went near. And half the time it was boarded up, and the other half the time there were mysterious people living in there, and then they would go. And it was just completely not part of our world. However, there was an alley. And the alley used to wind around back of all the houses. And I was an alley type from the from the time I first started to get out and work in the, you know, in the world. Now, there are some people who have never stepped into an alley, except to very fastidiously take a bottle of light and lively, um, you know, their little old uh, crushed carton, and take it out and very fastidiously and drop it in the garbage can and hurry like hell back into the house. Well, there are other people who find the alley is the world. Now, it's very hard to know how you get that way. Did you ever read a book called The Circus of Dr. Rao, is it? Yes. Well, that's very much about the same thing. This writer, by the way, uh, <laughs> he wrote one book, really. He wrote several other books, but this is the only one that really makes it. The Circus of Dr. Lau. And it's about that world of the alley. Not really, but very, very tangentially. And so every day I would come home from school. I'm in third grade, roughly. Yes, in fact, it was third grade, vividly. It was Miss Robinette. And I was in the Cub Scouts. And already I was studying, you know, to become a full-fledged Boy Scout. You know, you have to take the vows and all that stuff. And, and uh, I was studying diligently. I had a copy of the Boy Scout handbook which was, you know, only bigger kids were in the Boy Scouts. And when you're in the Cub Scouts, you have one of these little hats with the little beanie bill. And uh, I remember this purple hat with kind of dark blue hat. you remember those hats? With the little gold Cub Scout thing on the front with the gold piping on it. I had this beanie. And uh, every night after I would leave the Warren G. Harding School, I would set out down the alley. It was wintertime. Now, generally, in the summertime, I would not come home down through the alley because I wasn't going to the Warren G. Harding School in the summertime, obviously. We would be playing ball from the crack of dawn till the last kid was dragged out of the sticker patches trying to find a ball which had been lost for four weeks. <laughs> and uh, this, was, uh, this was the summertime. But the wintertime, every night, it would be dark. It would be like uh, maybe quarter to four or something like that, and the sky is getting gray. And I would set out down the alley with Schwartz and Fleck. And we would go down to the alley, and we would take opposite sides of the alley and look for stuff in the garbage as we come home. <laughs> and we would find all kinds of wild stuff. Oh, yes, i never forget the time I brought home the purple toilet seat. And my mother flipped. And uh, <laughs> where'd you get that? I thought, Father, let's put it on. She says, get that thing out of here. Well, that was a part of the uh, education you learn when you're, you're growing up. And so uh, Schwartz was about halfway between school and my house. In other words, I was about half, twice the distance away from school that Schwartz was. He lived about halfway down. And so he would split off about halfway up the alley. Flick was between me and Schwartz. You got it? I was way out 
Well, like would be in the solar system in Jupiter. I was the furthest one from school. And so there would be a long part of the alley that I would traverse by myself. Now, when you're a private kid, you know, you're very different than when you're with the guys. And so we would start out down the alley. It's about quarter to four. It's cold and the wind is blowing. And we go plodding along the alley at the Schwartz and Flick. And I, we, we, we used to invent games, too. That was another thing. We'd have, for a very brief time, there would be a game. Like, uh, we would take a pet milk can. I remember we used to play uh, hockey in the alley. And we would uh, <laughs> constantly run kicking this can, see? And, and the rules would constantly change, you know. If you uh, kicked it into Miss Snyder's garbage can, you got two points. And uh, So then there would be another game the next week. And uh, we were continually, it was a continual moving procession of activity. Never, never, never static. And it was constantly changing, the environment. And so during Christmas time, you would find all these little Christmas trees thrown out there, and thousands of miles of Christmas paper. And you'd find Christmas cards. And a lot of times, you'd even find an old Christmas present that somebody threw out. You know, they, didn't, they couldn't figure out what the devil to do with this thing, so they finally threw it out. And uh, we would find all kinds of stuff constantly. During, uh, uh, for example, during... Uh, Valentine's Day, you would find all kinds of Valentines out in the garbage. Uh, you, everything reflected the holidays. Uh, you would find the uh, Easter time, yeah, you'd find all kinds of Easter bunny stuff and all that. So we're always out there walking along. And back of this house, there was a huge garage. Now, it lay between Flick's house and my house, this enormous Victorian pile. Well, this garage had been, many years before, apparently, it had been some kind of a, I don't know what it was, some kind of a, uh, maybe a servant's house or something, but it had a door in the back of it that faced onto the alley that was not a garage door, but an actual door, like you could just go in, see? And the top half swung out. It was a swinging door, a split door. Well, one day, old Shep is coming home. I've got on my, my brand-new coat which every winter was a big thing in the house, you know, to get the new coat. And I had this new sheepskin coat, beautiful sheepskin coat, with a sheepskin collar, see, a very groovy coat. And it came with a helmet that had goggles. It was made out of leatherette. You know how the leatherette stuff smells? Vague uh, smell like rubber, sort of vaguely plastic. Well, every day I'm walking down past this garage, and I would look into the window. It was just a ritual. Because piled up in this window were all kinds of stuff. Now, in this house lived a famous magician. Believe it or not, we had a magician that claimed... I never saw him. Nobody ever actually saw this man. But he was a famous magician, and it was said that this was his winter headquarters, this house. And every couple of days, you'd see big trucks out in the back there unloading stuff and that, and it really was an official house. Well, on this fantastic day. I'm coming home and I, I look in the back window and I see this face. Tremendous face looking out of this gray, dirty glass window which was on the top part of the floor. This enormous face is looking out and I'm looking in at him. It was the first camel I ever saw. There was a camel in the garage. Now when you're nine years old, how tall are you? Maybe eight, nine, ten inches, maybe something like that. This camel 
was roughly the size of Lincoln Center. Unbelievable. I mean, I've been eating animal crackers for years. I've seen pictures of camels. But I've never... This camel was so big, his, his head was like up at the top, the ceiling of the roof, up at the second story. Tremendous thing. And I see this camel. Well, something in my mind touched off a little bell. Don't tell nobody about it. Because I knew somehow that it was illegal to be back of the garage poking around looking at the camel. This famous magician named Mr. Thurston, Thurston the Magician, Thurston the Mysterious, had a camel in his garage. And this camel is looking out at me. He's got these strange, big, watery eyes and enormous nostrils. And he's moving back and forth. When I looked at him for about five seconds, he looked at me. Then his head moved forward, and he pushed the top, and the door swung open. He stuck his head out. And he's looking at me. Well, I was scared out of my skull. But at the same time, I mean, I couldn't stop but look at him. You know, I'm a, a camel. Well, we stood there for about three minutes, me and the camel. I got a stick, see, and I've been running along. My, my usual practice was to run along after flick split and run past all the various fences, and I had this stick, which I would, you know, along the fences. I used to particularly like to get Miss Snyder's rooster. It was about a half a block down. He'd flip every time I'd come up. This rooster would run along. He was always trying to get me. Well, that was, you know, part of the whole scene. Now this camel. What a fantastic thing to find in your alley. Well, the next day, I don't tell nobody. See, the next day, Flick splits off, and I have saved a half a peanut butter and jelly sandwich on whole wheat bread. Now, that's what I was... I was in my, my, my uh, peanut butter and jelly bag at that time. I used to go through various phases of my lunches. I went through a salami phase. I always liked salami on the white bread with the strawberry jelly on it. I went through that phase for a while. Then I went through my cream cheese phase with strawberry jelly. I love strawberry jelly. And uh, I was now going through my peanut butter and strawberry jelly phase with uh, whole wheat bread. Well, I have stuck a half a peanut butter and jelly sandwich in my pocket. Well, for scientific experimentation purposes. And so I come along and I see this camel. He's looking at He's just head moving back like a snake, you know. The head just moves back like a snake, back and forth. Well, I walk up to the door, and he looks down at me, and his head sort of ducks down, and I reach into my pocket, and I pull out the half a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. When I hold it out, <coughs> he just sucks it up. He inhaled it. <coughs> just like that big, wet tongue, big slummy. He's got big teeth. These teeth stuck on, I'll tell you, them. each tooth must have weighed four pounds, and they're yellow, you know. Boy, talk about, the, you know, the yellow going off. Man, I'll tell you, teeth. <laughs> Ooh, you ever seen a camel's teeth? They're unbelievable. He just... <sighs> this camel staggers back. I don't think he had ever had a peanut butter and jelly sandwich before. You know, camels usually eat the... You know, I don't know what camels eat, but it ain't peanut butter and jelly, especially Skippy Chunk-style peanut butter and jelly. He would... <sighs> His eyeballs... Oh, just flipped them. Ooh, he loved it, see... <laughs> I only had one half of a sandwich. You can see his head goes forward. He wants more. See, he's turned on. Well, I hang around the camel for about 
ten minutes this day, you know, and I'm poking him with a stick, and he's moving around. He wants more sandwiches, see? With that, I go back home to the house. Now, it was absolutely forbidden in our house to ever go near the Thurston house. Forbidden. Absolutely. In fact, every kid in the neighborhood was totally cut off of that scene. You weren't supposed to go near that. See, so I, I keep this in my head quiet. I don't say nothing. Well, the next name, another half a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Well, I walk up to the camel this time, and he's waiting. See, he sees me coming down the street. He remembers the peanut butter and jelly. So I come along there, and I pull out the peanut butter and jelly. I'm about uh, halfway up, up to him already. And I say, I hold it up like his eyeballs are spinning. So I walk up and <laughs> he knocks that thing down. You could just see it was, I mean, he was really hooked on peanut butter and jelly. He loved it. Now, if any of you ever have any occasion to have any dealings with a camel, I would suggest peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. That gets them right where they live. Now, I don't know why. I don't know. Maybe it's an old Arabic dish. I don't know. But they really turn on with this. Well, I, every day from that time on, it is cold and winter. Cold and wind is blowing. And it is gray. And now it is past Christmas time. And every day I have this rendezvous with the camel. And every day he is getting more hooked on peanut butter and jelly. And every day I am bringing him a half a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And every day he is waiting for me. It got to the point where he would look out. I would see him. I would be about a block away, and I'd see his head looking out. And he could tell what time of the day it was, I guess, apparently, you know, by his stomach or something. He's looking out, and you'd see this big head like a snake just moving back and forth. And I would see him outlined against the gray skies, the skies of the smoke and the, the, the gray steam coming out of the steel mills. This camel in this bitter cold air waiting for his fix. Every day, the peanut butter and jelly is coming. Me. And he loves me, see, I figure. Well, this goes on for maybe six weeks, and it's a deep-held secret. I am, I know it's wrong, and I know that if my mother ever found out I'm feeding a camel peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, forget it, because it would be hell to pay, you know. So, one day it happened. For some reason or other, I, I must say I, it probably is my fault, I ate my entire peanut butter and jelly sandwich. You know, you have these days when you're really hungry. I got nothing to give the camel. So I come down to, never, never realizing what is about to happen, see. And let this be a warning to all of you. If you ever get mixed up with camels, man, if you think elephants don't forget, <laughs> and, and camels, oh, do they spit. Listen, that camel... Sometimes when I would hold the, the sandwich out, a lot of times I wouldn't give it to him right away. The camel would go, oh, boy, he could spit 30 yards. I mean, that camel one time hit me in the left lens of my goggles, my, my, my helmet and goggles. He got me in the lens of my goggles at about 45 yards, like a line drive. And is it smelly? He could spit like nobody's business. So I got to know all about camels, see, and my mother didn't even know I'd ever seen a camel. Once in a while, she'd say, you smell funny. Well, you know, you pick it up. And on this day, I'm walking down the alley with a stick. Little realizing, see. I see the camel, his head is sticking out, moving back and forth like a snake. 
I walk up to him and I look him right in the eye. You know, with the stick. I say, hi. He sniffs. His eyeballs are bugging. You could just see. He could taste it. You could just see the anticipation in his camel's eyes. And he's looking down and he starts sniffing down, see, towards my pocket, which he always did. I reach in my pocket and I have a old Wonder Bread wrapper, which I'd had around my sandwich, and I says, nothing here, Dad, and I throw it out. He rocks back. He ain't getting a peanut butter sandwich today. You could see this opaque look of profound disappointment. I'll always remember it go across. You have never seen the expressiveness in a camel's eyes, friends, unless you've dealt with one. This look of tremendous disappointment. And I say, too bad. Camel, I ain't got no peanut butter for you today, but we're all friends, right? And so I stick him with the stick, you know. He's looking bugged. I stick him with the stick again. <laughs> with that, I say, so long, Dad. It's snowing. It's kind of cold out. And I've got my beautiful new coat on. I turn and start to go down the alley, and suddenly, whap! Something hits me from behind. I look behind, and I see this fantastic camel has got a hold of the back of my leather red coat. Ah! Chomp! He has taken a bite out of my leather red coat. I'm serious, friends. The size of a basketball. They got big mouths. He just bit it right off, and he's chewing it. Oh. The camel swallows that big chunk of leather red coat. He spits, and I go down the street scared. I go down the old alley scared to death, my leather and coat. What am I going to tell my mother? I get in the house. I try to walk in sideways. And mothers, you know, instantly sense when you're faking it, you know. She's, what's the matter? Turn around. I turned around. She's, what happened to your coat? I just, a camel bit it. A what? A camel bit it off the bank. Ooh, what did I tell you about lying? And five minutes later, I'm in the john with a bar of Life Boy soap sticking out of my mouth. And she says, now you tell me what happened to that coat. A camel bit it. If you, if you don't stop lying, I'm... Now I'm going to tell your father. And you know what he's going to do? You know what he says about lying? <laughs> camel bit it. She says, now you tell me the truth. Well, I had to tell her the truth. Flick did it. She says, what? Now, why did you tell me that in the first place? Yeah, Flick did it. He grabbed it. Tore it off. And she gets on the phone. I hear her yelling at Mrs. Flick. Then I hear Mrs. Flick yelling at Flick. And then I can hear from the distance, ah! Flick is getting it. And you know... That story has persisted to this day. Quite often when I talk to my mother on the phone, she says, do you remember the time you told that, that nutty story about the camel biting your coat? I said, yes, Ma, I remember. I learned one thing. People don't want the truth. Lie, kid. Lie for all you're worth, and they'll believe you.